On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is about state parks, natural beauty, and things that might make you think twice about enjoying it. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Welcome to episode 34, The Not-So-Great Outdoors. I personally love nature, but I'm also scared of it. Bears terrify me, which is why you'll probably never hear about me going on a hike or a camping trip where bears are. But wildlife isn't the only thing to be afraid of in today's cases. One case involves a serial killer who left some of his victims in the great outdoors, and the other cases are unsolved disappearances connected to the great outdoors. Let's put on our imaginary bug spray and pocket our bear repellent and dive in. Terry Peter Rasmussen. And I'm going to stop right there because I know people with this last name. And in Indiana, they pronounce it Rasmussen. But everything I listened to and looked at said Rasmussen. So I will say Rasmussen. Anyways, Terry was born in Colorado on December 23rd, 1943. From July of 1958 to April of 61, he lived in Phoenix with his family. He attended North High School in Phoenix, where he dropped out his sophomore year. In April of 61, he enlisted in the United States Navy. He remained there until discharge in July of 67. Terry then moved to Hawaii, where he worked in the shoe shop owned by his parents, and in July of 68, he got married. He moved back to Phoenix, Arizona, where his wife gave birth to twin girls. In Phoenix, he was employed as an electrician, where he worked until he moved his family to Redwood, California in 1970, where he also worked as an electrician in Palo Alto. That same year, his wife gave birth to a son, and a couple years after that, they have a fourth child, another daughter. That year, which is 1972, he and his wife temporarily separate. Sometime in 1973, his wife and he are back together, and they move as a family back to Phoenix, where he goes to work as an electrician. He is also working in a shoe shop, but I don't believe this was his parents' shoe shop. It isn't long before his wife has finally had enough, so she takes the children and she leaves Terry. In December of 74, Rasmussen, see, I want to say Rasmussen, Rasmussen shows up to visit his wife and children unannounced. He is not alone. He has an unidentified woman with him. Terry says he is living in the Casa del Rey apartments in Ingleside, Texas. This visit is the last time that his estranged wife and children will ever see him. In June of 1978, Terry goes to work for the Brown and Root Company in Houston for a little while. Job records show that he, quote, quit to work elsewhere. Not real specific. That same year, he contacts a friend in Arizona to ask for money and tells the friend, that he is working on an oil rig in Texas at the time. It isn't until September of 78 that his divorce is finalized. Of course, this is done without his presence because his whereabouts are not known. Until sometime in 79, he is working as the head electrician at Wombeck Mills, but he is doing so under the name of Robert T. Evans. In February of 1980, Bob Evans is arrested in Manchester, New Hampshire. This arrest is for issuing a bad check at the end of 1979. 
Terry is arrested again, or should I say Bob, in 1980, May, for theft of services, meaning electricity. In October of the same year, he is arrested yet again as Robert T. Evans for diverting electric current. Three times in one year, all in Manchester, New Hampshire, and every time he's arrested, they believe he is Robert T. Evans. Now we jump forward to November of 1981, and a woman named Denise Bowden and her six-month-old daughter go missing right after Thanksgiving. She's in the company of her boyfriend, Bob Evans, at the time. The couple is leaving to supposedly escape debt, or that's what her family believed. So when she doesn't get in contact with them, the family does not report her as missing, assuming it's because she's hiding from her debt. So we're going to time jump again to March of 1984. And Terry, now using the name Curtis Kimball, is hired to work for an electrical company in Los Alamitos, California, where he works until May of 85. And in May of 85, he is arrested for a DUI in Cypress, California. Something else happens in 1985. A hunter finds a 55-gallon metal barrel lying on its side adjacent to Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Inside the barrel, wrapped in plastic, are two bodies. One is an adult female between the ages of 23 and 33 and a female child somewhere between 5 and 11 years of age. Both of them have blunt force trauma to the head. Missing persons report in the area don't turn up anything. And authorities start to wonder, how could a woman and a child be missing and no one reports them as missing? Unless, of course, they're not actually from the area. Maybe they're from somewhere else and were dumped in this particular location. So January of 1986 comes around and Terry Rasmussen is living and working at the Holiday Host RV Park in Scotts Valley, California. But he is not going by the name of Curtis Kimball all of the time. Sometimes he's Gordon Jensen. In June of 86, Gordon, a.k.a. Terry, abandons a child he's been traveling with for quite some time. This little girl everyone assumes is his daughter, but he abandons her there. Her name is Lisa at this RV park, and he flees the area. In September of 1986, fingerprints end up proving that Gordon Jensen and Curtis Kimball are the same person. No one knows yet that those aren't even real identities. They don't know about Terry. November of 1988, Terry is pulled over in San Luis Obispo, California, and it turns out he is in a stolen vehicle from Preston, Idaho. He's arrested again in March of 89 for warrants he had for child abandonment. This would be for Lisa. He's sentenced to three years for that charge. In October of 90, he's paroled and takes off immediately for California. So the question is, was he arrested as Curtis Kimball or Gordon Jensen? In two different articles I read, one said Curtis Kimball. The other said Gordon Jensen. Either way, we know it's Terry. So after he is paroled and takes off and he's in California, we don't have really anything to talk about until we make a big jump forward eight years to June of 1998. 
and a man named Lawrence William Vanner is pulled over and ticketed for not having insurance or a driver's license. And I bet you can guess who Larry Vanner really is. May of 2000, 15 years after the first barrel was found, a second barrel is found next to Bear Brook State Park. And this time, the barrel contains two female children. One is between the ages of two and four, and the other somewhere between one and three years old. Two years later, in June of 2002, Yoon Sun June up and disappears from Richmond, California. Her boyfriend, Bob Evans, is questioned about her disappearance. That questioning becomes something else when Yoon Sun June's body is found partially dismembered and mostly mummified in the couple's basement. Her body is buried in cat litter. Bob Evans ends up pleading guilty to her murder and is sentenced to 15 years to life. August of 2003, DNA testing on the five-year-old girl that was abandoned in the RV park in 1986 tells a story. Rasmussen, or the man she knew that went by the name of either Gordon Jensen or Curtis Kimball, was not her father, as she initially believed him to be. In case you're wondering why this DNA testing even came about, it was because when she was around 34 years old, she wanted to find out about the father who'd abandoned her. So she had the testing done. And then, as a result of this, she finds out that her name isn't Lisa, but her name is Dawn, and she is actually from New Hampshire. The five-year-old girl that was abandoned was actually the daughter of Denise Bowden, who had disappeared with her boyfriend, Bob Evans, and Denise's, at the time, six-month-old baby girl. At this point, it's pretty established that Evans slash Kimball wasn't biologically related to Lisa slash Dawn, but he was, however, the biological father of one of the young girls inside one of the barrels. In December of 2010, Terry Rasmussen dies at the High Desert State Prison from a combination of lung cancer COPD, and pneumonia. But this does not mean that authorities are going to stop working this case. By now, they know that Terry Rasmussen has many aliases. Bob Evans, Gordon Jensen, Larry Vanner. There was also Curtis Kimball and Jerry Mockerman. They are convinced that he is connected to the bodies in the barrels, and they are motivated to identify the victims and get closure for the families. In 2013, San Bernardino detective Peter Headley gets Lisa's case, the abandoned girl. Because of this link, they can now put Evans in New Hampshire in the same time frame as the Bear Brooks murders. Meanwhile, a librarian who is into genealogies and is doing some sleuthing on her own decides to try to help identify this victim. These, I'm sorry, these victims. She runs across a post about a missing woman and child. She makes contact with the person and gets a name. That name is Marlise Honeychurch, who left with her boyfriend and had never been seen again. That boyfriend's name was Terry Rasmussen. The woman in the barrel and the youngest and eldest girls in the barrel are then identified. The woman is Marlise Honeychurch and her two daughters, Marie Vaughn and the baby, Sarah McWaters. In 2016, they are able to confirm, like I said, that Bob Evans was indeed the biological father of the unidentified two- to four-year-old girl. Big question remains, who was the child's mother? Police are left to suspect she must also be an as-yet-undiscovered victim of Rasmussen. 
In January of 2017, authorities put out details regarding Robert Bob Evans and talk about the connection to the Allenstown homicides and the disappearance of Denise Bowden. They also release a video interview of Evans hoping someone will recognize him and that they will finally discover his true identity. One of Jerry's adult children from his first marriage gives their DNA and by July of 2017 they have completed the DNA testing and it confirms that the man known as Bob Evans is indeed Terry Peter Rasmussen. There are other possible victims. In April of 1980, 14-year-old Loreen Ron disappeared from Manchester, New Hampshire. Rasmussen lived just a mile and a half away from Loreen at the time. Also something interesting to note is the abandoned child Lisa slash Dawn was asked by detectives back in 86 if she had any brothers or sisters. She told them she did, but then said this, quote, they died eating grass mushrooms when they were out camping, end quote. Police suspect maybe these children were victims of Rasmussen as well. There's also the case of San Joaquin County Jane Doe from 1995. An unidentified woman's body was found in a refrigerator that had been dumped into a canal. This woman had died of blunt force trauma to the head, just like Rasmussen's known victims. It's interesting to note that Rasmussen broke the serial killer mold. Most serial killers do not kill people they know or have a connection with. They kill strangers. Rasmussen only killed people he had some connection to or relationship with. There are six known victims, the four victims found in the barrels and Denise Bowden and Yoon Sun Joon. There are probably more, including the mother of the child in the barrel who Rasmussen fathered. Maybe one day the answers will be found. Now, I have some unsolved cases for you. First up is the case of Julie Williams and Laura Winans. Julie Williams grew up in Minnesota. She was a born athlete and even won a tennis championship in high school. As a kid, she loved climbing trees and being outdoors, but she was also intelligent and enjoyed writing as well. In college, Williams was interested in geology and social justice. She was also fluent in Spanish and volunteered as an interpreter for the local police department translating for domestic abuse victims. We also have Laura Lolly Winans, who grew up in Gross Point, Michigan, which is an affluent community. There was some trauma in her childhood that she struggled to overcome. Despite this, she was energetic, kind, and had a good sense of humor. She sort of rejected the privilege that came with her well-to-do upbringing and left home right after high school. She briefly attended a college in Vermont, but dropped out. A few years later, in 94, she enrolled in Unity College near Waterville, Maine, and started studying to become a wilderness guide. She found her calling as a wilderness guide and an outdoor educational program. This is where she met Julie Williams. The two of them formed a relationship and decided in May of 96 to take a trip to Shenandoah. Part of the trip's purpose was to celebrate William's new job as a geologist in the Vermont Lake Champlain region of Vermont. There are photos out there of the two of them on vacation and they look happy and relaxed. On May 24th, the two women went out hiking with their golden retriever Taj. On May 31st, Tom Williams, Julie's father, reports her missing. This results in a search by park rangers. They find Julie and Lolly's car just north of Skyland Lodge. And during the search, they find Taj wandering alone in the woods. On June 1st, 
Rangers discover the bodies of the two women at their campsite, just off part of the horse trail system called Bridal Trail. They were gagged and bound, and their throats were cut. Julie was 24, and Lolly was 26 at the time of their deaths. Now, the location of their campsite wasn't too far from the Skyland Resort, which is a popular place in the summer. But per the rules or regulations that the park has, campers have to stay off of the main trail and out of sight, apparently so people at the resort don't have to see their tents and stuff. So they weren't out in the wilderness, but they were not visible. So perhaps there are witnesses because the place is busy, but investigators do not come up with anything. Now, a year later, Yvonne Malbasha, who is a tourist from Canada, is cycling along Shenandoah's Skyline Drive. She is forced off the road by a man driving a truck. He is yelling sexual profanities at her as he gets out of the vehicle and tries to force her inside of it. Yvonne fights him off and hides behind a tree. The man gets back in his truck and makes several attempts to run her over. Thank God he eventually gives up and speeds off and he is apprehended by rangers as he's trying to leave the park. The driver of the vehicle is Daryl David Rice of Columbia, Maryland. Inside his truck, they find hand and leg restraints. He ends up being convicted of attempted abduction, and the prosecutors are able to place him at Shenandoah at the same time that Winans and Williams were on vacation. Prosecutors are of the belief that he killed the two women in a homophobic rage. Daryl denied this. He was supposedly reported to have said that the two women deserved to die because they were lesbians. He was actually indicted in 2002 for this, but by 2004, the case had fallen apart due to insufficient forensic evidence. The Park Service is still investigating the case and has offered an award for tips leading to the murderer's arrest and conviction. Next up is the case of Paul Braxton Fugate. Paul was a veteran ranger at Chiricahua National Monument in Arizona. It's January 13, 1980, a slow Sunday, and Paul tells a fellow employee he's going outside for some fresh air, a little hike. He tells that co-worker that if he is not back by 4.30 to go ahead and lock up. Paul walks out the door and is never seen again. 41-year-old Paul was wearing a green and gray Park Service uniform with a gold-colored ranger badge on his shirt when he left that day. The Park Service and local police conduct an intense search, but come up with nothing. There is some speculation that he might have accidentally stumbled into a drug smuggling operation or something similar that day. The park is on the border of Mexico in a county that is a known hotbed of drug and human trafficking, according to Arizona police. It's possible that because of his uniform, whoever he stumbled across might have thought he was law enforcement. In the weeks following his disappearance, a whole slew of potential fates started circulating. One witness claimed to have seen Paul in a vehicle with two other occupants leaving the park and that Paul seemed to be slumped over between them. Someone else said that Paul Fugate was buried in Wisconsin. And then there were supposed sightings of Paul in a bar and even one in Belize. The file on Paul's case also has some conflicting portraits of the man. There's the nice guy who loved his job and worked hard. There's another guy who was in trouble with his supervisor for having long hair and a bad attitude. Another little thing of note I'd like to bring up is the National Park Service kind of played dirty when it came to Paul's wife, Dodie. In 1981, 
Howard Chapman, the director of the Park Service's Western Region, took a look at Fugate's case, and in his opinion, he decided that Paul willingly abandoned his position, and while Paul is missing, they go ahead and dismiss him from his role, which I assume means fired him. Then they ask his wife, who I can imagine is an emotional wreck because her husband is missing, is asked to pay back the $6,900 she was paid plus 11% interest. Later, they change it to just deducting it from the retirement fund Paul had. Dodie, his wife, was told there was no way to appeal it because a termination hearing has to happen within 20 days. Now, how is Paul, who's missing, going to appeal his termination? For six years, the National Park Service absolutely refused to list Paul Fugate as deceased, and that meant his wife could not collect any benefits. In 1986, the Park Service and an Arizona investigator take another look at the case and finally confirm Paul is likely dead, and Dodie was finally able to claim the full financial support that she had coming. I would say that that is not a good look at all for the National Park Service. Now let's talk about a Jane Doe, shall we? Yosemite Summit Meadow is the spot where the remains of an unidentified woman were found. The remains were partial, and it was determined that she was the victim of a homicide. The remains were found along Glacier Point Road in 83. Special agents with the National Park Service were working with multiple laboratories and other agencies to try and identify her. A forensic anthropology exam and a CT scan helped forensic artists come up with a digital facial reconstruction. And they did this without the benefit of the bottom jaw. They assumed she was at a minimum in her late teens, possibly as old as 30. And they think they know who killed her. Henry Lee Lucas. In the 1980s, he was interviewed and he seemed to have information on a particular murder that was never made public and what he knew only the perpetrator would have known. Lucas claimed to have picked up a female hitchhiker on Highway 41 between Fresno, California and Yosemite National Park. He said she was about five foot five or five foot six and had straight blonde or light brown hair and that she probably weighed between 100 and 125 pounds. He also claimed she had silver rings on both her hands. Lucas died in prison in 2001, but this Jane Doe of Yosemite National Park is still unidentified. And I think we will end today on a suspicious death. Bobby Bizup was only 10 years old in 1958 when he went missing from Camp St. Malo in Estes Park, Colorado. This was adjacent to the Rocky Mountain National Park. Bobby was deaf and communicated via sign language and reading lips. Bobby had trouble speaking, however, especially if he was upset. Bobby was the son of an Air Force Master Sergeant. On October 15, 1958, while attending a Catholic summer camp, Bobby vanished. According to Father Richard Hester, the camp director, Bobby had gone fishing and failed to return with the counselor and the other boys. Why would the counselor leave one boy behind? I don't know, but that's the story. A search party went out, and in the following days, hundreds of people joined in the search, including aircraft. They didn't find him, and the search was eventually called off. The following July in 1959, a group of hikers that consisted of, now listen to this, 
three camp counselors and some boys from the same camp Bobby had been attending are heading up Mount Meeker, just west of the camp. One of the people in the party find a bone and a bit of clothing. A search the next week turned up more bones and more clothes. Authorities decide that this is Bobby and that he had probably died of exposure and exhaustion. Nobody questioned this and no investigation ensued. Bobby's parents, Joe and Connie, buried him at Fort Logan National Cemetery. Bobby's remains were found inside of the park's boundaries. The nature, cause, and circumstances of his disappearance were never established in any definitive way. Now stick with me. The location where Bobby's remains were found had previously been searched by not only the local police, but the National Park Service and military personnel. It was already searched a year ago and suddenly the remains are there. That sounds suspicious. And what's also suspicious is that years and years later, there is a skull in the possession of the son of a priest who worked the camp that there were some molestation charges against. And that son is a counselor who also happened to be the one who found the bone and clothing. It all sounds very bizarre, very shady. I don't even know for sure if the skull has been confirmed to belong to Bobby. The whole thing just sounds janky to me. Let me know what you think. And that will wrap it up for today's episode. I hope you weren't planning on going camping anytime soon. And if you are, please grow eyes in the back of your head and be careful. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, between running from bears and avoiding serial killers, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Crime Biscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Stay inside with your doors locked and watch some Netflix. The great outdoors can't get you if you don't leave home. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.